the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me, and went after worthlessness, and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness? in a land that none passes through, where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things, but when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, Where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care, see if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Verse 19. Your evil will chastise you, and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you declares the Lord God of hosts. First John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Please be seated. Let's take a moment to reflect on God's word. You will need to have your Bible open to Jeremiah 2 today, and we'll be working our way through a number of different places in the whole chapter, not just the ones that we read. Most of you are familiar with the concept of an intervention. A husband or wife calls about their spouse, a friend calls on behalf of another friend, and they tell you that their spouse or friend has a problem, 
And that problem is destroying their lives. And to compound that problem, the, the person is in denial. They don't see that they have the problem that you see. And so you are called because you care and you see things clearly. And they're going to ask you, maybe as an individual or a group of people, to intervene. To step into the life of the person who's in denial. And the intervention language is always the same. It's universal. You meet with the person and you look at them and you say, Don't you know? Can't, can't you see it? You feel like somebody that's just waving the flags in front of the person saying, you, you are headed for destruction. And, and it seems like everyone can see it. Everyone knows it except for you. And so you stand there and you plead with the person, don't you know, can't you see that you're destroying your life? But if you've been involved in an intervention, you have a anticipated first reaction from the person. And that is denial. And since you've anticipated that reaction, you have come armed with examples. And you just sort of pile on example after example after example, hoping that somehow that's going to capture this person's attention. That, that after enough examples, they'll say, okay, right, I see it. Maybe, maybe I didn't see it before, but I see it now. And hopefully that barrage of pictures will help them turn around. In my first sermon on Jeremiah, I offered one possible meaning for the name Jeremiah. Remember what that was? Jeremiah could mean the Lord hurls or the Lord throws. And so with a divine precision, Jeremiah was hurled into a very serious situation. But he wasn't hurled into the life of a person. He was hurled into the life of a nation. He was sent to intervene. Judah had a problem. The result of their problem, their sin, their waywardness as a nation was not only destroying their lives, it was destroying the whole nation. And so on behalf of the Lord, Jeremiah is called to intervene, to come in and to look at Judah and to stand in Jerusalem and say, Judah, don't you know, can't you see that the direction that you're taking as a nation is leading to your own destruction? And the intervention language is clear if you look in verse 19. Know and see, this is Jeremiah speaking, know and see that it is evil and bitter for you. Can't you see the decisions you're making? It it ends up being evil and bitter for you. This is not the kind of life you would want to live. For you have forsaken the Lord your God. That's their problem that they're in denial about. In the Hebrew, the word forsaken means to let go or to abandon. And so God's people have made a fatal mistake. They, they were holding on to God in the beginning, but they've let go. 
and they've abandoned God. And now they've not only wrapped their hands, but they've wrapped their hearts around other things. And those things now are giving them life, or so they think. And when Jeremiah comes onto the scene into Judah, he's trying to say, can't you see Don't you know that the things you've wrapped your heart around now aren't giving your life? They're actually leading to your own destruction. And so this intervention really begins in chapter 2. Chapter 1 of Jeremiah is Jeremiah's call. And chapter 2 is the intervention. And the intervention really lasts through chapter 6. But we're just going to focus our attention on chapter 2 this morning. And I want to highlight three things. First, I want to see that how God makes his case. God's going to take his own people to court. And so he's going to make a case. He's going to pile on example after example, picture after picture, so his people can see. And then we're going to see the people's response. We're going to also see our own own response to God and the people's response. And then quickly at the end we'll consider the solution. So God makes his case and then the people respond and then the solution. Look at verse 9, if you will, as we look at how God makes his case. In the ESV it says, therefore I still contend with you. In the NIV it has this translation, I'm bringing charges against you. This is a legal term. This is the idea of one person taking another person to court. And so God is gathering up his people and he's saying to his people, I'm taking you to court. I'm putting you on trial. I'm going to expose what you've done. And throughout the chapter, Jeremiah uses these graphic images to try to help the people see something, hoping that they'll get back into a relationship with God. We might think of it in our terms as, as Jeremiah's PowerPoint presentation. If Jeremiah had been a preacher at that time with technology, this sermon, if he was ever going to use PowerPoint, he would have used it at this point. Because he just piles on one picture after another. In case they don't get the first one, he's got another one. And his PowerPoint presentation just flips like a chart through the chapter, which we'll see. The first picture in verse 2. I remember the devotion of your youth. Your life as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness. The first picture in Jeremiah's PowerPoint presentation is a wedding picture. Picture a bride and a groom. You probably have one of these pictures if you're married or you've certainly seen them. The bride and the groom are standing closely together. They're holding hands. They're, they're staring deeply into each other's eyes. And, and the bride is saying, I, I've given myself to you. Wherever you go, I'm going to follow you. All that matters to me right now is you. I've got my eyes just on you. And wherever you go, that's where I'm going to go. I'm holding on to you. That's the picture that Jeremiah is presenting to Judah. That's what they were like. And God asked in verse 2, Do you remember our wedding? Do you you remember when you didn't have anything? 
And I came to you and I swept you off your feet out of Egypt and I led you into a wilderness. And even though it didn't look like there was anything out there, it just didn't matter to you because you were holding on to me. I was all that mattered. And what happened? Verse 7. I brought you into a prosperous land. I showered you with good things. That's what happened. The groom led the bride into prosperity. And when the bride got prosperity and began to gather things, dust began to collect on the wedding picture. Time passed and they began to wrap their hearts and their hands around the things they were collecting. And I want you to look at verse 27 and feel the force of the argument here. This is where they've come to in verse 27. You have said to a tree, you are my father. To a stone, you gave me birth. I mean, how is this possible? Do you see what they've done? They've assigned life to the, to the gift. They have said, these things are giving me life. They're like my father. They're giving me birth. These things, God, that you have given me, I've reassigned to them this property. They're giving me life. And because these things are giving me life, I now am letting go of the author of life. I've made an exchange. Paul says it in Romans, they've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Images like trees and stones. God is stunned. Jeremy read it in verse 10 and 11. He, he asked the people, go look around. See if any other nation has even done anything like this. But my people have, ex- have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be shocked. And then at the end of verse 27, Jeremiah holds up one last picture. You first have the picture of the bride and the groom, and the bride is staring longingly, willingly into the eyes of the groom. And now you have this second picture in verse 27. And what does he say? For you have turned your back to me and not your face. You, you were holding on, and I, and I did bring you through the wilderness into prosperity. And when you began to collect things, you slowly let go and began to grab hold of those things till you thought those things were actually giving you life. And now, I don't see your face I see your back. I really want you to stare at this picture. 
I want you to see the contrast that, that Jeremiah is trying to set up. This beautiful wedding picture and now this broken marriage with the groom still looking at the bride, still wanting the bride, but the bride is turned away. I want to particularly address this point of application to my peers. And those people would be not 25, although that many people would think that, but people who are in their 40s. I want you to look at these pictures. I want you to ask yourself, do you see yourself in these pictures? I say that because I think it's very possible that maybe 10 or 15 or 20 or 25 years ago, you had this wonderful relationship with the Lord. You had your hands wrapped around the Lord. You were committed to Him. Wherever He was going to go, you were going to go. You had this abandonment towards Christ. But time passes on. Dust begins to collect on your wedding picture. God, as far as I can see, has led all of you all into a very prosperous place. And perhaps you have been collecting things like homes and clothes and furniture, boats and cars and careers and bank accounts, and an education, and vacation, and a lifestyle, and expectations. And is it possible that over the time you've reassigned life to the things? Is it possible that you have been led into an extraordinarily and an exceptionally prosperous land and you've been collecting things and now what you're saying is I'm holding on to the gifts as is as if those things are giving me life. Paul, I must have this kind of bank account. I must have this much in my retirement. I must have this kind of house, this kind of car, this kind of career, these kinds of expectations. Those things must be met or I don't have life. Is that possible for anybody here? That what you had an abandonment towards Christ just slowly over time, you reached out for the things and you ended up turning your back on the Lord and you've assigned life to the gifts And you've forgotten about or you've turned away from the giver. The second picture Jeremiah draws here in verse 13. My people have committed two sins or two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me. That's an evil. They've turned around. And then God describes himself as the fountain of living waters, this fountain that never ends. It constantly bubbles up. If you're ever thirsty, it's always able to satisfy. And secondly, they have hewn out or they have dug out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns, cisterns that can't hold water. 
God says he's the unending source of life. Remember in John chapter 4, he meets the woman at the well, and she's saying, well, give me that life-giving water, and she thinks it's the water in the well, and Jesus says, no, I'm, I'm the life-giving water. You need to come to me. You need to be satisfied with me. And God says, that's, that's like me. I am this spring. But God's people, instead of staying with God, decide to carve out cisterns for themselves. They decided to rely on things that their hands could make to give them life rather than God himself. And the problem with Middle Eastern cisterns is that they leak. A cistern typically is dug into the ground and you you try to pick some sort of hard stone or some kind of limestone that then after you dig out this big holding tank in the ground, you drop down into it and you plaster all over the cracks so that when the rain came, you'd have some kind of funnel that would keep it in the cistern. And the cistern might hold the water for a while, but because it was carved in the earth, slowly little cracks would form. And the water would begin to seep through and the cracks would get bigger. And finally you came to the cistern and you were dying of thirst and you looked down in the cistern and there was no water. And God said, that's that's what happened to you. You have dug out things for yourself. You've said, these things, they're going to satisfy my thirst. And the cisterns in Jeremiah's day have a leak just as well as the cisterns in our day. I remember this picture when I was thinking about this sermon. This man, I worked in a restaurant when I was in college. And the first thing you did at the restaurant, is in a typical restaurant, you just bring them a glass of ice water. And then you take their order. And so this was a very nice restaurant. And I was the waiter. And I came and I delivered the water. And I don't know how it got by a number of people. But I delivered this glass of water. Pretty big glass of water. And the glass had a hole in it. And it, it, was, it was as if somebody put the hole there. It was just under the lip of the glass. And I just happened to put it down to where this guy was going to pick it up. And the hole was on that side. And there he is in his nice suit, really thirsty, I guess. And that poor man, he tried three times to get water from that glass. And every time he picked it up, he thought he was doing something wrong because water began to pour out on his lap. And he'd look down and he's kind of embarrassed and he'd try again and water's pouring down on his lap. He kept trying to satisfy his thirst, but there was a crack in the glass. And after I laughed a number of times, I did go and apologize and get him another glass. It was just too great to not have him do it several times. But, but I wonder if anybody here is like that. You've invested in a cracked cistern. You are trying to pick up things in this world and you're saying, if I can just get this one more thing, if I can get it to my lips, if I can get my degree, 
If I can get my job, if I can just get one more pay raise, if I can get my boyfriend, if I can get my girlfriend, if I can get a spouse, if I can have a child, if I can get to retirement, if I can get to next week, you're holding on to all kinds of things thinking, if I can just get that to my lips, then I'll be satisfied. And it just never is satisfying. You live your life constantly groping after just one more situation, one more thing. As soon as this time arrives, then finally, and it doesn't satisfy you, so you have to go to another cistern. Very easy thing for us to do, as it was in Jeremiah's day. There are many more pictures that I'll just point out to you, like a slideshow. Verse 14, Judah, you have become like a slave. Verse 21, Judah, you were planted as a, as a great uh, cultured vine, but you've become a wild vine. You're no use anymore. Verse 24, you're like a donkey in heat. You're just unable to control yourself. You're like a thief, verse 26, caught in the act of stealing. I, I, I found you, Judah, with your hand in the jar. Verse 20, and I quote, You have bowed down like a whore. You see, the problem is serious. Jeremiah's intervening. He's trying to get the people's attention. He's trying to say, don't you see? Don't you know the direction you're going is leading to your own destruction? But the people are in denial. Let's look at the people's response. And I want you to just notice, and I just picked this up later in the week as I read through it, the, the progression or what feels like the progression of sin in someone's life. And you tell me if this doesn't fit some scenarios that you found yourself in. The people's response is to deny. Look at verse 23. And I'm going to call this stage one of the power of sin. Stage one, verse 23, outright denial. I am not unclean. Everyone here is an expert in sin. We know you are. You don't have to hide the fact that you're a professional sinner. And you should know by now that sin has a certain property about it. And that property that that sin has, it makes you think, it cons you into thinking, I don't have a problem. Or it's just not a big deal. I mean, yeah, I'm not perfect, but I'm sort of in control of these different issues in my life. That's the first property that sin exhibits. And so if you're confronted with the drinking problem, you say, look, it's okay to have a drink. I'm in control. If you're confronted with a problem of pornography, that's not really hurting anyone else. I mean, I can stop whenever I want. You're confronted with gossip. I'm just telling people what I've heard. I mean, they're going to find out sooner or later. You're confronted with anger or bitterness. I'm not angry. 
It's just all the other people. If they would be normal. The the first stage of sin is outright denial. It's really not my problem. I don't have it like you think I have it. Stage 2, verse 25. Notice this. Like It's this context of a wild donkey. You said, it's hopeless. For I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. The first thing you do is you just deny that you have a problem. The second thing, which I think can be a form of denial, is that you just say, it's helpless. You're denying the fact that anything or anyone can actually come in and help. And many times when you're talking to people like that, they put you off by just saying, it's helpless, I I can't be helped. In other words, you should just leave me alone. Maybe God made me this way. I can't help it. I'm not perfect. Hear those things in your mind? Once you're confronted and you just can't deny it anymore, quite often stage two is just to say, I'm helpless. It's just the way I was made. I I guess I'm not going to be perfect like you want. And it's really a way to just push people off, to push the sin off. Stage three, verse 29. Stage one is what I call the delusional effect of sin. It's outright denial. Stage two, I named the defeating effect of sin. I'm defeated. I, I can't be helped. And stage three, in the most dangerous stage, verse 29, I've called the dethroning effect. Remember in verse nine, God says, I'm contending with you. It's really a legal term. I'm taking you to court. Look at verse 29. The people now are contending with God. They're actually taking God to court over their own sin. You see what's taking place? God is not bring, God's bringing charges in verse 9. Now in verse 29, the people are bringing charges against God. It's been a complete reversal. God, I see what you're saying, but you know who I think the problem is? It's you. Now, not, not as an illustration from my own family. But from my experience with with teenagers, teenagers are masters at this reversal. They are so adept at coming into a situation that they're the ones that are in trouble. And on their parents, before their parents even know it, the parents are the ones that are on trial. And here's a scenario that I thought was uh, would, would sort of capture the idea of that. Your teenager goes to a party. Or goes out and you say, I don't really want you to go by so-and-so's house. Okay, I won't go by so-and-so's house. You're out a little later in the night while they're out. And you just decide if you'll you'll go by so-and-so's house to see if your car happened to go by so-and-so's house. The one that was borrowed. 
Sure enough, you see it there. You go home. You wait for your wonderful teenager to show up. They come back on time. And you say, did you go by so-and-so's house? Stage one. Nope. Outright denial. I did not go by so-and-so's house. Well, you're going to start piling on pictures right now. I drove by. I saw your car parked right behind that. Okay. They're caught. Well, they're probably not going to move to stage two, which would be like, the car couldn't help it. I meant to drive, and the car just careened into that spot. They're probably going to not do that. But they will go to stage three. Very quickly, they'll look at you. Do you feel good about spying on your own offspring? (laughs) I see clearly now, mom and dad, you don't trust me. I see the problem. You don't trust me. Aren't you the one who was supposed to train up a child in the way he should go? (laughs) Apparently, what we've learned tonight is that I'm not going in that direction. And you're not doing a very good job. (laughs) Mom and Dad, I think you need a little time out right now. (laughs) Would you please go to your own room and think about your failure as parents? They're just great at reversing it. So you sit there with your tail between your legs. I'm just such a terrible parent. It's now become your fault that you've done something. And as funny as an example that is, it's horrible when it happens between you and God. You look at your own sin and you turn to God and you hold him hostage for your own sin. And you wouldn't ever say it, but you think, I am going to contend with God when I see him face to face. He will answer to me for these things. That's stage three. You have now dethroned God and you have put yourself on the throne. And God now will answer to you. We've all gotten through those stages, the Bible says. And Jeremiah gives us one last picture, verse 22. One, one last part of the PowerPoint. Though you wash yourself with much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me. Remember, remember Lady Macbeth? Remember this famous scene in Macbeth? Lady Macbeth and, and her husband, they want to kill the king and dethrone the king so that they can get on the throne. And they actually go through it. And then they're living with all this terrible guilt. And Lady Macbeth in sort of this dreamlike state, sort of wandering through the castle... You remember what happens? She's got stains on her hands. She's got blood stains on her hand. She's constantly trying to wash them off. And then William Shakespeare gives her this line where she swears at her hands. Remember what it is? Out them spot. No matter how many times I try to wash this guilt away from me, the spot just keeps reappearing. 
I can't get rid of this damn spot in my soul. That's what the Bible says is everyone's condition here and in the world. They have a spot. It's called sin. And no matter how much they try, they themselves cannot get rid of the spot. So what's the solution? First John 1, 5 through 9. It's really hard to say with big enough words. <laughs> There's a solution. And it's not up to you. Somebody else has come and taken your guilt away. Somebody who could cleanse you inside and out. Somebody who could come and take away that damn spot of sin. Somebody who came and was damned on your behalf. So you could live before the throne of God. It's an incredible news. It's called the good news, the great news of the gospel. And Mark says it, or John says it like this. This is the message. This, this is the message the whole world needs to hear. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness. If we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, Cleanses, uh, cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all spots. William Cooper was a famous hymn writer friend and contemporary of John Newton. But William Cooper was a very disturbed individual. He had a lot of emotional and mental problems, and he frequently fell into depression. And when you fall into depression, like Cooper did, you exaggerate your weaknesses, you exaggerate the things that you've done. And you exaggerate how people see you. And so he would walk around town and he believed everybody could just see right through him and see all of his guilty stains. And he got so depressed that he decided that he would kill himself, which he tried on several different occasions. And it didn't work. And he sort of woke up from this dark period after a number of weeks and he wrote a hymn. First verse, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunge beneath the flood. Lose all their guilty stains.
The Bible is very clear. We have broken a relationship with God. We have turned our back toward God. And now we live with stains. And you can think of a million in your life. That as much as you try to wash your hands, they just don't go away. And Jesus has come to wash you clean. To lose all of your guilty stains. Sinners. There is a fountain filled with blood. And sinners who are plunged beneath that fountain of blood lose all of their guilty stains. So here is a table. Here is a table for sinners. But sinners who have trusted in Christ as their Savior. Who have said, yes, I see that I have my hands and my heart wrapped around the things of the world. God, forgive me. And He comes and rescues you and turns you back towards Him. So for all of those who have turned around, who have repented, come to the table. Plunge yourself one more time beneath the the flood that removes all your guilty stains. Let's pray together. Lord, as we share in communion this morning, very stained people come up this aisle like a bride. People with very tattered clothes, very haggard looks, limping, dirty, But they come to a groom who washes them whiter than snow, presents to himself a beautiful, radiant bride because of what you have done on all of our behalfs. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this remembrance. Thank you for this gift of grace in your son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.